Good evening. Pence may talk to the January 6th committee. Giuliani grilled in Atlanta. Afghanistan starves under United States sanctions. Long COVID and open restaurants sheds go down. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday, August 18th, 2022. Mike Pence says he would think about testifying before the House Select Committee investigating the attack on the United States Capitol if he were invited to do so. The former vice president who came dangerously close to a mob chanting hang Mike Pence inside the Capitol on January 6, 2021, was headlining a politics and eggs event in New Hampshire Wednesday morning, speaking to the committee. If there was an invitation to participate, I would consider it. But you've heard me mention the Constitution a few times this morning. On the Constitution, we have three co-equal branches of government. And... Um, any invitation to be directed to me, I would have to reflect on the, the unique role that I was serving in as vice president. Um, it be unprecedented in history for a vice president to be summoned to testify on Capitol Hill. But I, as I said, I don't want to prejudge. If there's ever any formal invitation rendered to us, we'd give it due consideration. But my first obligation is to continue to uphold my oath and continue to uphold the framework of government enshrined in the Constitution that has created the greatest nation in the history of the world. And we'll do that. And we'll do that. Pence's former chief of staff, Mark Short, previously testified to the January 6th panel. Short later told ABC News that he believed there would have been a massacre if the rioters had gotten close to Pence during the attack. A senior Trump advisor, Alan Weisselberg, who was also longtime chief financial officer for the Trump Organization, pleaded guilty Thursday to evading taxes on a free apartment and other perks. Weisselberg struck a deal with prosecutors, making him a star witness against the company this fall. Weisselberg admitted taking in over $1.7 million worth of untaxed extras, including school tuition for his grandchildren, free rent for a Manhattan apartment, and lease payments for a luxury car, and explicitly keeping some of them off the books. Judge Juan Manuel Merchan agreed to sentence the 75-year-old executive to five months in New York City's Rikers Island jail complex, although he'll be eligible for release after a little more than three months. He'll also pay nearly $2 million in taxes, penalties, and interest, and complete five years of probation. Weisselberg also avoided testifying against former President Donald Trump. Meanwhile, Rudy Giuliani said yesterday he had satisfied his obligation after facing hours of questioning before a special grand jury in Atlanta. The former New York City mayor and Trump personal lawyer is the target of an investigation into attempts by Trump to overturn his 2020 loss in Georgia. He was in a wheelchair at JFK Airport after the grilling. Great. Were you able to answer many questions? I can't really tell you that. Grand okay. jury proceedings yeah. are, are uh, confidential and and if, and if they don't violate it, I won't. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you can't. You can't say anything no. about it, well, or even the kind of questions they asked. No, or... I shouldn't comment on it. And okay, we'll we'll see where, where they go. How but, was the plane ride? Plane ride was okay. I mean, it's how a, did you know? How it was my flight. first one. <laughs> I just told by my office. I have no idea how it's they. It's the knew. first one I've taken since I got the stench put in. Oh so wow! I was a little concerned about it, but. Yeah, some of the other writers said that you were sitting on a plane afterwards. You needed to yeah, no, rest no, I, I a little. Had to wait the, I need to use a wheelchair for the next month or so. Oh, until oh, everything settles in. I also have a, I have a need has to be operated on. Wow, did it feel exhausting because no. of the stent? Or no, 
you know. It worked out well. It, but, worked out, it worked out better than I thought. I was. The Fulton County Grand Jury is one of several investigations into Trump's actions in office as he lays the groundwork for another run at the White House in 2024. In international news, on Wednesday night, a bombing at a mosque in the Afghan capital of Kabul during evening prayers killed at least 21 people, including a prominent cleric and wounded at least 33 others. There is no immediate claim of responsibility for the attack. The Islamic State's group local affiliate has stepped up attacks against the Taliban and civilians since the former insurgents took over the country last year. It was one year ago this week, U.S. and NATO troops were in the final stages of a chaotic withdrawal, ending in a bombing that killed hundreds of Afghans and 10 U.S. soldiers. Desperate Afghans were seen falling to their deaths as they tried to hold on to the last U.S. planes as they took off from Bagram Airport. Meanwhile, as the Afghanistan's Taliban leadership celebrated their victory over the West last year, the United Nations humanitarian chief for Afghanistan warned that unless donors provide $2.5 billion very soon, the country faces pure catastrophe over the coming winter with millions of lives at stake. The United States has placed the Taliban under sanctions and most aid agents have steered clear of helping the desperate nation. Professor Emeritus at Lewis and Clark Graduate School of Education, Sahir Wahab, says Afghans have become pawns. What's going on is slow motion genocide. It has been labeled as the worst humanitarian crisis in history, freezing Afghanistan's reserve funds in the U.S. banks in New York, but also forcing Italy, Germany, and Switzerland to freeze another $3 billion. These $9 billion belong to the Afghan nation and to Afghanistan and no government. But the United States quickly not only froze Afghanistan's funds, but also declared widespread sanctions. Initially, and even today actually, hardly any country in the world or even international organizations dare to cross the United States. No money was coming into Afghanistan. It became decapitalized. Money left the country and money, the $9 billion was frozen. There was hardly any money. There still is no money for trade and commerce, for imports, for economic activities, for controlling inflation, exchange rate, etc. In short, there's no money, there's no cash, there's no liquidity in Afghanistan right now. Neither government nor NGOs, hardly even foreign organizations, international organizations, have any money to conduct any social, economic, educational health programs. Inflation has doubled. Half of the people have lost jobs. Most women have been confined to their homes. There is food, some but it's so expensive that it's beyond the reach of most people. 95% of the people have trouble feeding themselves. And we know that 9 out of 10 Afghans have little to nothing to eat. Millions of children are starving. This is the situation. The U.S. war, the military war in Afghanistan and occupation ended, but the economic warfare continues perhaps even more viciously. America first could be defined as a bloodlust towards Afghani people. Nothing they did, but because some people who might be involved with some or have some Afghani descent were somehow touched or breathed the same air as Osama bin Laden. How are we ever going to get around that? 
we have to convince the public uh, here and throughout the world, and I think a lot of the people outside of this country, even in this country, know, Paul, that Afghanistan and the Afghan people had nothing to little to do with the 9-11 crime. You know that the 19th hijackers were Arabs, mostly Saudis and two or three of them from other Arab countries. There was no Afghan involved. They were not trained in Afghanistan. Everyone from Chomsky to John Pilger and to myself, we said then that Afghanistan should not be penalized for the crime of a few Arabs who were training in Arizona. Afghanistan should not be punished for an assumed crime that was committed by other people, but also 9-11 families for peaceful tomorrows say, this is gone, we should not engage in revenge. The U.S. attack on Afghanistan on October 7, 2001, was really a reflexive revenge attack. But also, most Afghans today were not even born on 9-11-2001. Why penalize a people who were not even born, or a country that had little to nothing to do with 9-11? You know, it is, the world is facing enormous problems and challenges, You know, war is no longer the solution, whether it was an attack on Afghanistan or drawing disgracefully. We have to embark on peaceful cooperation, coordination, and a new architect for peace, development, and security throughout the world, in this country and also in Afghanistan. Sanctions and starving Afghanistan will simply really create terrorism, and it will create enormous numbers of refugees, and it will lead to mushrooming the drug industry. Soon, the world would be sorry for penalizing Afghanistan for something they don't deserve. Humanity, morality, facts dictate that we engage in peaceful diplomacy and solve problems through peaceful means and not war. Sahir Wahab is Professor Emeritus at Lewis and Clark Graduate School of Education. Hardliners appear to hold sway in the Taliban-led government. Teenage girls are still barred from school and women are required to cover themselves head to toe in public with only the eyes showing. But progressive groups in the United States are marshalling forces to push the United States to return Afghanistan's money despite years of war and bad blood beginning with the 9-11 attacks in 2001. In health news, Instagram and Facebook suspended Children's Health Defense this week after the anti-vaccine group led by Robert Kennedy Jr. allegedly violated rules prohibiting misinformation about COVID-19. A nonprofit, Children's Health Defense is one of the most influential anti-vaccine organizations active in social media, spreading claims about vaccines the establishment has deemed misleading. In a statement, Kennedy compared Facebook's actions to government censorship. In related news, researchers with Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles say they found 56% were unaware they were infected with the COVID-19 virus. The findings were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The researchers claim the Omicron variant is associated with generally less severe symptoms that may include fatigue, cough, headaches, sore throat, or a runny nose. Meanwhile, a large-scale study by the University of Oxford has found people who have had COVID-19 face increased risks of neurological and psychiatric symptoms, including psychosis and dementia, for two years after their infection. The effects include brain fog and increased occurrences of epilepsy or seizures. A fellow at the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science, Nicholas Reynolds, is the co-author of an article on neurological symptoms of COVID-19 published in Nature Communications. He says researchers don't understand 
and the molecular mechanisms triggering neurological symptoms. He says similar to some early symptoms of Alzheimer's. Long COVID, I guess it's characterized most consistently by, consistently by um, symptoms such as fatigue, persistent headaches, this thing called brain fog, which people talk about, which in itself is kind of a, a loose term for a, a number of neurological symptoms like short-term memory loss, um, inability to think clearly. How does something that affects your lungs get to your brain? People have found viral fragments, so pieces of the virus or even the whole virus in the central nervous system, so in the brain and the spinal fluid of, of people with COVID-19. So it most definitely is affecting the brain. How it gets there is not really fully known. And this is ongoing research. It's most likely we'll be able to cross this semi-impermeable barrier known as the blood-brain barrier as it goes in through the through the nose so that's how people think it is getting into the brain and what is becoming more clear is people talk about COVID-19 as an infection of the lungs but it's actually a very systemic viral infection it affects nearly every organ in the body including the brain and when it gets into the brain what are you finding that it does there we really don't know a lot about at the moment. So the, the paper that, that I published recently and suggests one possible explanation that might be that proteins from the virus, SARS-CoV-2, are aggregating, clumping together in a very specific way to form these so-called amyloid aggregates. So these, this is just a term for a clump of aggregated proteins that have a very specific molecular structure. And it is known that these kind of aggregated proteins are toxic in other diseases. And it seems like they could also be toxic in the case of SARS-CoV-2 because we've shown that they can kill brain cells that are cultured in a lab. You connect it with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. The term that's used a lot is the molecular hallmark of these, these neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's um, and also things like Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease is these aggregated amyloid proteins. So they are known to be present in all of these diseases and they either directly cause neuron brain cell death or they are a, a side effect of these diseases and that is what is causing the, the symptoms of, of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and potentially now some of the neurological symptoms of long COVID. What could we learn from COVID that might contribute to being able to treat Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, which are so far virtually untreatable? That is a good question. I'm not really sure. I think, I think looking at it the other way around is could therapies which have been designed and maybe have not been entirely successful to treat Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, could they be repurposed to treat some of these neurological symptoms of, of long COVID? I think that is a at least from my point of view, a more reasonable suggestion or a more likely thing that will happen because there's been 30, around 30 years of research into so-called anti-amyloid drugs which treat Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And a lot of these treatments have been very successful in clinical trials or at least had some degree of success in clinical trials. And for, for one reason or another, most have fallen by the wayside. I mean, there's, there's one which has been approved and is now available as antibody treatment. And these treatments specifically work to break up these amyloids and maybe they, they can have some success in treating long COVID as well. 
Nicholas Reynolds, a fellow at the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science. And more climate news. On Thursday morning, 100 climate activists blockaded United States Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's Manhattan office, demanding an end to what they call a side deal negotiated behind closed doors last month, giving a go-ahead to various projects they oppose. Ten activists were arrested during a peaceful sit-in at Schumer's office, holding signs saying Schumer stopped the dirty pipeline deal and off fossil fuels. Joe Manchin's not working for the American people, and he should not be negotiating. Corruption! Petroleum Institute. According to a leaked paper, the activists from a plethora of groups, including Food and Water Watch and No North Brooklyn Pipeline, among others, claim the side deal proposes to fast-track fossil fuel projects, gut decades-old environmental review processes for infrastructure projects, and silence the public's voice in decision-making. We'll have more on the story in a future newscast. And climate change is topping the bill in the crowded field vying for the new 10th Congressional District that includes Lower Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn. The news spoke with one of the candidates, Representative Mondaire Jones, last week. Today, we hear from another candidate, Assemblymember Yulin New, who spoke on the redistricting process that created the district and the lack of transparency behind the destruction of a beloved park in the name of climate resiliency. The way that it was redrawn after the draft, the finalized version, was very, very clear that they wanted to put communities that were similar in interest together. Resiliency issues, language access issues, immigration issues, etc. These are all things that these districts have in common. Now, one of your opponents says that she's never seen a, uh, a project that she says will bring jobs into the community that she's turned down. We're talking now on 14th Street, the uh, the tech building that was under construction there right now as we speak, and this huge, very unpopular project for many people along the East River, the East Side Coastal Resiliency Project. What do you say to this idea that uh, we've never seen a project that brought jobs to our community that we've turned down? Community input into the projects that affect our community have a lot of value and I think that a lot of times our community should be able to understand like some of the ins and outs of what's needed in the area and their input is very valuable when it comes to the issues that are surrounding the areas that are being talked about or redeveloped or changed in some way and for example if a neighborhood had experienced the flooding or the effects of Hurricane Sandy, like if you were trapped in your building and it was a high rise and you couldn't get down with no elevators, etc. You know, there's a lot of different experiences that you had that are relevant to the discussions on, on coastal resiliency. And I think that it's really important that we are hearing those things. My district is obviously one that had experienced 9-11, Hurricane Sandy, 
Um, a lot of the different weather events is also the district with the least amount of green space and a huge need for affordable and deeply affordable housing. It's really important that we are talking a lot about how we are going to make sure that our constituents' voices are heard by the city. And, you know, oftentimes the city's process is opaque and not accessible to constituents. And sometimes um, constituent input is completely ignored. And so I think that it's really important to make sure that we are Mm-hmm. inserting our community input into a lot of the different processes that the city has. And again, I've never been a city council member, but I do think that it's really important for us to make sure that we are always looking at community input. If you were elected, would you slow down or stop this project right now? There was a lot of non-transparency from the city and the handling. I don't think that anybody would disagree that the city handled things in a way that that kind of trampled on constituent concerns. One of the things that I would actually ask is that the city actually also remember that the state has a parks alienation requirement so that people have to go through a parks alienation vote. It's often not very hard. It's just really about making sure that there's another oversight of what's happening within the project, and it gives an ability for public hearing or input from the public on the state level. That's one of the things that I had a lot of concern about because the city actually girded the parks alienation vote on the state level, and I think that that's something that we should have had on the state level and be privy to having the oversight of the state on the city level. January 6th hearings are coming up. I think maybe that's one of the most important issues facing any member of Congress, former President Trump, who the FBI raided yesterday, it seems. We watched as domestic terrorism happened to our own capital. This is not a small thing. This is a really, really dire and frightening thing. We watched as our own president was committing treason. One should be afraid of what's going to happen without consequences to him if we don't hold him responsible for the things that he did. We definitely should be watching out. Very dangerous to our democracy. He's been dangerous to our safety, and he's spawned on incredible amounts of hatred and violence. This is something that our country needs to be watching every single day. Should President Trump be prosecuted? I believe that he needs to be prosecuted for his crime, yes. Assemblymember Yulin Nu is a candidate for the 10th Congressional District. The primary is August 23rd. In more local news, New York City Mayor Eric Adams today announced a multi-agency enforcement initiative focused on removing abandoned sheds in the city's open restaurants program. As part of a launch of the initiative, Adams took a sledgehammer to an abandoned shed in Midtown. Before he took his shot, the mayor said, despite his actions, outdoor dining is here to say. We are a thriving city. In fact, if we close down at 5 p.m., we should be Portland. We're not Portland. We're New York. We keep it going. The city that never sleeps. In fact, we don't even take a nap. And so we have to have that mindset when we think about this city. Nightlife is a key indicator of our city's economic health, and we must keep it strong, and we have to get it right, and we have to do better uh, to make sure structures like these uh, are not existing in our community. Uh, when a dining shed is no longer in use and if it's abandoned and it's a safety hazard, we have to turn it, tear it down. It can't be a safe haven for, for rats. It can't be a safe haven for illegal behavior. Uh, it has to be a place uh, to allow people to enjoy dining. And we still have a COVID issue. 
you know, we're doing a great job, so you don't acknowledge it, uh, that it still exists, but the team is doing right, and some people are still comfortable with dining outside, and we say we want to make sure they have a safe place to do it. The blight and disorder that we are witnessing at some of our sites is unacceptable, and it will not be how we do business in the city. So if you uh, see an abandoned shed, we're asking the public to participate with us. We want you to call 311. Or, as you love to do, uh, take a photo. Take a photo and send it via text or email to 311 so that we can immediately respond. We'll check it out. And if necessary, we're going to do what we're doing today, and that's taking it down. The sheds have been popular with diners as it provides some protection from the COVID-19 virus, although the wooden structures have also attracted rats and garbage and taken up parking spaces. But Adams added, We want our, our, these sheds to be restaurants, not restrooms, you know. This week, the task force is taking down 25 abandoned sheds. The city has already pinpointed another 37 with problems. And that's some of the news for August 18th, 2022. The news produced, written, and anchored by Paul DiRienzo. You can follow the news on Apple Podcasts and at pauldirienzo.com. Thanks for listening.